Hello and welcome to Insight Invites, a brand new podcast dedicated to keeping you informed, engaged and up to date on the key issues our industry faces. In this three-part series, let's call it a trilogy, we will hear from a range of experts as we discuss the Building Safety Act, its scope and just how it will affect you. The Building Safety Act has been described as the biggest change in safety legislation our industry has seen in a generation. So whether you're a developer, builder, new homeowner, contractor, surveyor, architect, or a member of the public, this act will impact you. The question is, how ready are you? In this, our first episode, we welcome two leading industry experts to explain what's in the act and what it means for those who develop, own and manage buildings that fall within its scope. So I'm delighted to welcome and introduce our first guest, Peter Dorber. Peter chaired the Working Group on Site Supervisors as part of the work to improve competence in the industry in the wake of the Grenfell Tower fire and was subsequently appointed to lead the development of a new competency standard for principal contractors as part of the BSI's National Standards Programme. He is currently a member of the Interim Industry Competence Committee, which is advising the Building Safety Regulator and chairs its Capacity and Capability Subcommittee. I think that's all. Hi, Peter, and welcome. Our second, but absolutely first-class guest, is Paul Nash. Paul is a past president of the Chartered Institute of Building and chaired the Working Group on Procurement as part of the Independent Review of Building Regulations and Fire Safety led by Dame Judith Hackett. He has been a member of the Industry Safety Steering Group since 2018 and was recently appointed to the Building Advisory Committee, which advises the Building Safety Regulator on safety and standards. So likewise, Paul, a very warm welcome to you. Thanks, Martin. It's good to be here. So, as you can uh, appreciate, it hasn't been quiet in our industry for quite some time. Uh, So just an observation in terms of kicking off that everything with regard to the BSA seems to be moving forward at such a, a rapid pace at the minute. So it might actually be useful to take a breath and a bit of a step back to where this fundamental change really started. So... This question is is to you, Paul, really, and you might have to go back in some sort of time machine or whatever and, and revisit the past, the murky past or whatever it might have been. But it was just really, can you give a, a sort of a brief run through of how we got to where we are today in regard to both the Act and building safety? Uh, yes, Martin, I'm happy to do that. Um, and I think to start with, uh, it's, it's important to say that any conversation about the building Safety Act really has to begin by remembering the 72 people who lost their lives at, at Grenfell Tower on the 14th of, of June. And and everything really that we're going to be talking about uh, on this, um, you know, on this call is is as a result of that. Uh, that having said that, I mean, there were warning signs before Grenfell. And we know um, from the fire at uh, Lackanall House in 2009, where six people lost their lives, that there were concerns already being voiced uh, about building safety, particularly in high rise residential buildings. But it, it was it was Grenfell that really um, demanded a response. 
from government and from industry. Government responded very quickly uh, by establishing uh, a public inquiry and appointing Sir Martin Morbick to lead that inquiry. Um, and, and as we'll know, uh, the uh, final stages of that inquiry um, closed last year, and we're expecting to receive Sir Martin's report at some point later this year with his recommendations. Um, but in parallel with that, the government also established an independent review of uh, building safe, uh, building regulations and fire safety, uh, and it appointed Dame Judith Hackett to lead that review. Um, I was fortunate to be uh, a member of uh, the group that worked on that report, uh, which was published in 2018, and that report was called the Building a Safer Future. And it identified 53 recommendations. Um, uh, it identified a number of issues in the industry. I think it's important to stress that um, and recommendations that flowed from that. And, and really, those recommendations have provided the, uh, the, the framework for the legislation that we're going to be talking about on this call. Um, that legislation uh, has worked its way through Parliament over the last uh, two years uh, through initially uh, a draft bill um, that was scrutinised uh, and then the bill itself. And, and finally, on the 28th of April last year, that's 2022, we saw the Building Safety Act uh, becoming enacted. So, so it's now law in England um, and, and also elements relate to, to Wales as well. The devolved administrations, it's important to say in, in, in Scotland and Northern Ireland uh, as well as well, that Wales will be developing their own legislation around building safety. But I think what we're going to be talking about today primarily applies to uh, buildings uh, in, in England um, and the consequences, if you like that, for those who as you said in your introduction, really are involved in the in commissioning, designing, constructing, and 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 owning, managing these these types of buildings. In your opinion, Paul, where do you think everyone is in terms of that? In terms of how far down the line? Okay, we've got the people leading at the front front end of it, but we've also got the people following behind. Where do you where do you think most people are with that at the minute? I, I think it's fair to say it's 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 a mixed bag, to be honest, Martin. I th I think I I talk to a lot of people in industry, um, in outside of industry, on the design and construction side. And I think um, many of them understand the act and, and what its implications are for them. I mean, Pete's going to be talking a bit about the huge amount of work that's ongoing around competency, um, which is probably fair, important to say applies to all buildings building regs apply to, not just to higher risk buildings. Um, uh, but, but also, I think, you know, what helps that, and we may talk about this uh, elsewhere, and I don't want to sort of steal Pete's thunder really here, but, you know, in terms, you know, in many respects, what we're looking at doing is taking an existing system and making it work better. Now, there's a lot involved in that statement down changing culture and behaviours, uh, as well as the, the, the new building safety regime that that uh, duty holders under the Act will need to comply with as well. Um, I think probably the biggest change I see within this um, is is in respect of um, the ownership of, of these types of buildings and the responsibilities that are going to be put on uh, the people who own and uh, manage higher risk buildings going forward. And I think in that respect, it's fair to say, you know, we may touch on it later on this call, that there, there, there are a lot of new responsibilities, legal responsibilities with criminal liability. Uh, and I don't think, I think that picture is probably uh, a lot less clear as to how many of those people uh, and organisations really understand their responsibilities under the Act. So it's really important that we get that message out there. And as I say, we might talk more about that. Yeah, we might talk about it later on this call. And also I'll, I'll preempt what we might do in podcast two as well. I think we're going to discuss some of the legal implications of what might come down the line later on. So 
any any viewers or listeners as there might be to a podcast will will probably tune into that one to see where where they legally stand which is which is where most people would be very interested to find out so yeah so i'll go over to you peter uh, i won't steal your thunder in terms of anything else but uh, you were did attend our recent uh, insight event you outlined uh, the following advice on competency uh, Paul's mentioned your role in terms of the competency side of things, but uh, I'll quote you on this one. So hopefully I won't misquote you, but your quote was you, you never work beyond your own levels of competence. You must know what you are good at. Uh, can you expand on this for us? Well, thank, thanks, uh, Martin. I think I, I wish, I hope I said at the same time as well, you must never do what you're not good at, because I think that's probably much more important. So uh yeah, hopefully I did reiterate that. I'll, I'll come back to that in a second. Uh, yeah, most of this competency work, as Paul has said, has come out of uh, Dame Judy's report. She, she recognised that there was a, um, a mixed bag, as the phrase that Paul's used, approach to competence. There were many good schemes. There was um, there were many uh, existing schemes in place, but there was no genuine approach. There was no cross-sector understanding. Um, and part of the drive to change culture uh, and to make sure that we provide safe buildings was to to try and remedy that and and to try and prove the competence of, of all of those. And it is all of those. Uh, people do tend to focus on the key detail holder roles, but everyone in the sector should be competent. And, and the point I was trying to make was that there are many frameworks out there now. We're developing many frameworks. There's probably at least 12 to 13 that exist. There are the, the the three pages, as they were, 8671, 72 and 73 for the duty holder roles. But there are plenty more. Uh, but the, prem the underlying premise of every one of them and the kind of first part of being competent is knowing what your limits are. So knowing what you can do, but certainly knowing what you can't do. And there's a very clear expectation in all those frameworks that to be competent, you, you neither do something that you're not competent as, uh, you, you don't do anything that you're not competent to do, but you certainly don't ask anybody else to do something that they're not competent at. And so there's quite a few implications in that. One is, is just knowing yourself, really, knowing exactly what you're good at and what you can do. Uh, and you can't just know it. You need to get that certified. You need, you know, you need some kind of third-party um, certification of that so that it, it's conformed. So you need to know the, the boundaries of what, what you can do. And, and also know the boundaries of those around you, because if you're going to ask team members to do and undertake roles and responsibilities, you've got to know that they're competent to do so. Um, so, uh, where, and where they're not, kind of lead and extend them as well. So there's some quite substantial implications for, uh, for all of this. And, that, and as I said, it doesn't just rely with the, these key roles. Down the whole supply chain, you know, the principal contractor, the main construction lead, and the principal designer, the main design lead should be making sure that everyone in their team is competent. But what it doesn't mean is that if you're not, you don't hold your hands up and say, not my job, can't do this, I'm not competent. The idea is that you should be able to have, though, or identify someone who is competent and ask them the right questions and understand their answers and make sure that that, that seems sensible and logical. Uh, before we proceed so it's having those kind of the informed conversations that you can that you should have before you uh, proceed with the work so it's not about just limiting what you do uh, to what you know you can do but to to develop and to 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 work with others who, who are competent in those fields 
Yeah, in, t- in terms of competency and frameworks, it's nothing new to the industry. It's something that it hasn't just dawned on us. Uh, so in terms of that, how, how well placed do you think our industry as a whole, and I know I'm generalising here, the construction industry as a whole, in terms of competency and frameworks? It's a, it's a bit, so I've always argued that there are many competent people out there who just don't know because they're not certified. And I'm sure many people would believe that they are personally uh, competent. Um, it's, it's interesting you ask that. I just led on a piece of work for the IICC where we contacted most professional bodies and trade bodies involved in, one would expect to be engaged within certifying individuals for the principal contractor, principal designer, and the management of, of uh, HRBs to see what they were putting in place for their members to be to be deemed certified or, or if not, to help them become certified. And as I think the phrase Paul's used, a mixed bag, we had some who were very well organised, very structured, not into the delivery phase yet, uh, but have certainly have a well-determined, clear plan. And others that are saying, well, it's not really to do with us. We don't really think that um, it, it, it's impacting on us yet. So it, um, the phrase I used at the meeting this morning where I presented this back to the IICC was, it's quite clear that those organisations haven't opened the box yet. Because if you did, you wouldn't be saying those kind of things. And that's the kind of under underlying uh, worry i think but um yeah again a mixed bag some very good leaders uh, and some very slow adopters and for the, for those who are adopters as such what one thing that's been uh, crit- we've been critical of the industry as a whole is it's uh, it's been described as pale male and stale and with an aging demographic possibly frail uh, and in terms of the age and the demographics uh, do you pick up anything in terms of those who are sort of more towards the back end of their careers in terms of competency and frameworks and and whether whether we will lose people as a result of some of this? Yeah, yeah well, funny, I, I saw some figures the other day of the, the demographic time bomb that we know is, is there. And um, so we know uh, that is happening. The, the, you're right, it's, it's, a, it's a worry that those many people might feel that they don't want to go forward and be and be assessed if you like to be certified as competent so the emphasis has got to be on on de- uh, developing a range of mechanisms uh, where we can uh, assess people's competence um and so they have, and they have to be a broad range because we have people who've, who've worked their way through the tools very successfully completely competent but uh, not minded to sit some kind of formal assessment so there's got to be um, a kind of um a, a proportionate approach to this and i think that's that's the expectation that we have to find a, pro, a proportionate approach that that means that we don't frighten people away from from um, uh, taking this re- this assessment or reassessment for some all over to you on that yeah i think all i would add to that is is just to reinforce the the, the point that, that pete made and you alluded to martin and i think you know it's recognized that there are um, there are concerns that um, the, the requirements, the raising the bar, I suppose, in terms of competence in, in some professions is, um, which, by the way, is absolutely the right thing to do. <laughs> I don't think anyone would question that. But that, that, yes, that may mean that some people will decide um, that they, um, you know, they don't want to go down that path. Um, and... Uh, we have to remember that, or, or more specifically, may not want to go down that path in respect of the buildings that are covered by by the Act as well, because I think I think you know there are um, the way that the um, uh, 
uh, the standards that Pete's working uh, on, the, the PASIs that were, were published last year, you know, there, there are competence requirements to apply to all buildings and there are additional competence requirements for those working in a high risk building. So I, I, I think there may be some differentiation, differentiation there. But, you know, there was a report that came out very recently published by CABE, funnily enough, that sort of flagged concerns about a number of their members, for example, in the building control profession, who were, you know, uh, concerned about this and, and may may choose not to remain in the profession. So, you know, that's um, that is something we are alert to as well. Okay. Martin, yeah. if I, can just, I just don't want to scare, on, if I can, I just don't want to, I don't want this kind of podcast scare people off and think, oh, we're all going to be having to retake our driving tests again. And uh, I can imagine if my daughter said to me, Dad, it's time you did that again, um, the, the, the fear I would have. It, uh, most people will be competent. Uh, you know, it's, it's not some, it's just, um, and so it's just a case of just certifying that, really. So it's not as if everyone's suddenly expected to, to uh, outperform every, anything they've done before. And when you look at the frameworks as well, there's nothing in there that you wouldn't want a good, construction individual to possess you know there's there's no kind of controlling moon landings or or flying drones it, it's 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 what you would expect a good individual in, in any of the senior roles within our sector to, to be able to do yeah. and i'm sure if any any company looked at its, its person specs for any of the people it recruits they would map very strongly against this it's just this um certifying that that is the case is the is the challenge I, th I think, Martin, just to add to what Pete said as well, the the you know what, what I think I like about the direction of travel here is is and the, the passes are really helpful in this respect and the legislation. You know, for individuals, we're talking about having the right skills, knowledge, experience, and importantly, behaviours to to you know to perform the role that they you know that they are being appointed to do. Um, and and for organisations, it's about having the right organisational capability. Now, let, let's just step back for a second and think about that. You know, one of the key lessons learned from the Grenfell inquiry is that, and, I, and, and let's not beat about the bush, the architect had no experience of working on a building of that type. That's what came out in the inquiry. And yet somehow... A, they thought it was okay to work on a building they had no previous experience of, uh, and, and with with obviously the consequences that, that flow from not having that experience. But equally, they obviously also felt, which comes back to the behaviour and the cultural issues, that maybe they couldn't challenge that because if they did, you know, that would have um, negative uh, consequences on their, you know, or, or would impact on their ability to to do further work for that client uh, in the future. So, so I think we have to, you know, we have to be willing to challenge some of those previous assumptions and it's got to be okay for somebody to turn around to a client and say look i'm, I'm sorry i can't i can't work on that i don't have the right experience i know you, you'd like me to um but this is my area of expertise and it goes back to the very first point that you asked pete about which it's about working within the level of your own competency you know not doing something you're not competent to do it really is that simple but obviously we have got we got to a place previously where where people didn't feel a felt that they had to do that whether that, whatever the reasons for that were they had to say yes but more importantly they didn't feel able to say no no i think that's a, a really important point paul because because it, what it comes down to at the end of it it's it's about, about protecting both themselves as individuals and recognizing where they are in terms of competence and but also more fundamentally as you brought it back to grenfell is is recognizing their competence in terms of what they should deliver on site and, and what they should deliver out there as well so very much competency is, is something we're working through at the minute as well from from, from our own perspective uh, so it's a work in progress at the minute but uh, 
I, I think what it brings brings you back around to, Peter, is, is what you said at the moment, uh, at the outset. You never work beyond your own levels of competence. I, I think that's that, that's what we're, we're all aiming for. Okay, um, moving on from competence, uh, one of the other key words is gateways. Uh, so, Paul, this is probably one for you. Uh, the gateways has, has been talked about a lot recently, uh, certainly on most people's minds. And some will have questions, particularly regards gateways two and three, uh, obviously due to come in in October. Um, what can builders and developers expect from these gateways? OK, so I think just a couple of points sort of to, to explain um, before I sort of talk about the gateways themselves, which is a really important part of the new building safety regime. There's no doubt about it. Um, first of all, the the Act uh, creates a, a new regulator, a building safety regulator, um, which is within the Health and Safety Executive. Um, so that's up and running now, um, has been for a while. And under the Act, the building safety regulator will become the building control authority for high-risk buildings. So just to remind ourselves, under the Act, a high-risk building is a building that's over 18 metres in height or seven storeys. Um, and in fact, there is uh, secretary legislation going through Parliament at the moment that also says that includes hospitals care homes and any building containing at least two residential units um, as far as the design and construction part of the new regime is concerned. So that 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 is in that context, the gateways can be viewed um, against the you know that, that change in responsibility for building control. Having said that, it's also worth pointing out that we've got a Gateway 1, uh, there's Planning Gateway 1, and that's been around in operation since the 1st of August 2021. Um, and, and, the, and the regulator there is assessing, or is a consultee under the planning process there. So uh, developers um, and teams, design teams submitting information as part of the planning process now have to provide a fire statement from the planning gateway one and the regulator is reviewing and commenting on those applications. So that's important to mention. Gateway two and three. So gateway two and three, um, gateway two corresponds with the current um, deposit plan stage on the building rigs. Um, uh, it is a hard stop. It's probably worth just making that clear in that you can't start work on site until you've got that approval from the regulator. And that's about demonstrating to the regulator that um, the design complies with building regs, essentially. Um, we are uh, expecting secondary legislation to provide greater clarity about what information the regulator will be looking for in order to assess an application for an HRB. But at the moment, that is, as I say, that is the first gateway from a design and construction point of view that you'll need to uh, be aware of. Uh, gateway three is um, corresponds with the completion stage certificate currently. So at this stage, what you're looking to do is demonstrate to the regulator that the building has been built in accordance with the building regulations. And that touches on quite an important point, which is that it's going to be increasingly important, I think, for uh, contractors and design teams and clients who appoint them to be able to evidence that what's been built complies with building regulations. Um, and I think that uh, that is going to have implications in terms of how builders record on site, how quality uh, and compliance is, is then uh, managed um, and, and assured, if you like, throughout the design and construction process. So, so one of the points I, I like to make to when I speak to you know design teams and, and, and other professionals and also to contractors is, look, you need to start thinking now about how you're going to evidence that compliance. 
Um, and I think it's important also to say that, that again, that gateway is a hard stop because without that, you can't actually occupy the building. So, again, be aware of the fact that I'm fully expecting to see changes to standard form contracts in due course that will make this uh, gateway approval a requirement of practical completion uh, in the future as well. So, so I think that's something that's the, probably the best way I can explain the gateways. As I say, the devil will be in the detail and we're expecting to see more of that through, uh, through secondary legislation uh, shortly, hopefully. And again, throwing back to a previous question, how well... Uh, set do you think the industry is for this are we are we still in the uh, thirst for more knowledge stage um i i, I think that's probably um I, I i think that's probably a mistake to uh assume that the people are sort of um are relying on the waiting to be told um certainly what i'm seeing uh, from the conversations i'm having with uh contractors and with design teams is, is, is they kind of already get it. They know um, what they're going to need to prove. What it does, I think, um, lead to uh, quite sensibly is um, a requirement for earlier engagement with supply chain, particularly around key packages that are you know, safety critical, such as cladding, for example, because, you know, this um, and I, you know, I've gone on record to say that I think this probably is is, is maybe the uh, the beginning of the end for a reliance on, um, you know, uh, design portion supplements, um, because uh, I, I which I, you know, we've seen a lot of in the last decade or so more and more information being pushed onto the contractor to develop during construction um i don't if you're going to get a gateway to approval on hrb now i think you're going to need to provide more information up front which means you know you're going to need to engage with specialist contractors and their designers in order to evidence that to the regulators so again i think that's probably a positive thing to be honest, for the industry as a whole, it gives more certainty around um, what you're going to build um, and how you're going to build it. Um, I think the other thing just to throw in, there is a change management process between Gateway 2 and 3 as well. Um, again, we've got a good insight into what that looks like because in the consultation that uh, was held last year um, into the design and construction regime, um, the, uh, the the department provided us with uh, a very helpful definition of how that process will work. And what this is basically saying is if you're going to make a change to the building um uh, the approved uh, building uh, design um, as at gateway two, then you need to go back to the regulator and, and, and get approval for that. Now that falls into two categories. You know, um, one one is uh, that if it's actually a requirement um, because it affects a material element of the build, then you will need to get that approved, and there's a timescale to do that. Um, but equally, they've also recognised in some cases it might not be that clear. And in which case you can notify the regulator uh, and they have uh, then an opportunity to come back and say whether or not it is a material change and therefore something that they need to approve or not. So I, I think that change management process is also important. And again, it, it goes back to the point I made about getting greater and earlier definition of design and then building what you've designed <laughs> fundamentally. So I think you know, it has implications in terms of post-contract value engineering, for example. You know, you, as a client, you would need to think quite carefully about, given you've got to go through an approval process, whether the time and cost of doing that is justified uh, when you're partway through the build. I would certainly concur with with what you mentioned on early engagement there, uh, Paul. That's certainly one of the one of the positives that's come out of it so far with with ourselves. We're working with lots of people, particularly on the building control side of things, who who are there's been a change of mindset out there in some respects. 
so that early engagement has certainly is certainly come come through by ourselves and we're more than happy to be involved in projects the earlier the better for us peter you're about to say something yeah no it's just listening to paul there it, it, it kind of it, it, i think it just demonstrates the interaction between the work of the competencies and and what's uh, what paul described in there the processes because it's from the competency side then we need to be looking at the competencies the skills and knowledge of individuals to, to, to be able to deliver that. So where contractors are specifying uh, as part of the, uh, the contract, then they're becoming designers and therefore they need to make sure that they are competent to, uh, to for that part of the design. So whilst they're responding to a, a specification, they still need to make sure that, that whatever they produce and feedback is, is compliant. So it, it starts to impact on the knowledge of these people of the building rates. So everything is kind of um, inter interrelated, I think, and it's um, and for that reason, it's, it's still quite fluid. I'm going to move on to something else. Thank you very much for covering the, the gateways there, Paul. Uh, it's as I say, it's something that's that's one of the hot topics. But in terms of everything that uh, the Building Safety Act has thrown up, it's also thrown up a lot of new terms, titles, and roles for us all to learn, as well as a few acronyms. As if we haven't got enough in our industry as, as it is. Um, but two of those uh, new terms or roles are principal designer and principal contractor. This again is for you, Peter. Can you shed some light on what these new roles entail? Um, yeah, thanks, Martin. They um, again, it emerges out of the Act and um, of the Building Safety Act, where it states that um, the uh, uh, the client should be appointing, uh, or, or people can be appointed uh, to undertake certain uh, work within the the, the, uh, the building industry, and they'll be appointed persons uh, appointed by a client, and they will be one of them a principal contractor, one of them a principal designer. So it's similar titles that we have in the CDM regs, but it's a different role. Uh, although the, the, uh, the uh, principal design and principal contractor can be both the CDM PC and also the building safety PC. And, and I guess in most cases, uh, there will be. Uh, so the focus of the CDM obviously is health and safety during construction. The focus of the Building Safety Act on the PC and the PD is to deliver a compliant, safe building. So that, that, that's where the focus is to lie. The, the principal designers and principal contractors are, are the lead individuals. It, it tends to be how the act is written. So it's the person who takes overall responsibility for the design and, and the, uh, the, uh, to make sure that if the design is built, and Paul's used this phrase, uh, if the design is built, it complies with the building regulations. And the, and the ownership on the principal contractor is to, is to deliver that design. But as, as we've said, to challenge if they believe uh, it's not the case. So no longer is it okay just to build what be, you've been told to do. You should be questioning, challenging, and making sure that what you are producing is is um, uh, as, as it should be. I mean, there are some certain quite clear duties on the PC and the PD. The, the point to remember is that you need a principal designer or principal contractor for all projects where building regs apply. So from your simple extension of, your, uh, of a home all the way through to uh, Olympic Stadium, building the shard, or, or, or whatever. So it's it's uh, one is always required. Uh, all the, way. the only time it's not is if you're working on your own property. That's the only time when it's not. So so these individuals cover uh, all that kind of those different kinds of projects. Um, the principal designer very quickly they're they're there to plan, manage, monitor the design work, 
making sure that it complies with the billing regs. They must coordinate, cooperate, and communicate their work with the client, principal contractor, and other designers. And then liaise with the principal contractor to share information relevant to the building work. And when, when you see those, you think, well, that's perfectly reasonable. Again, so it's nothing really that one wouldn't expect the principal designer to do. And the principal contractor uh, should be in control of the whole project. So it's the one who takes the overarching control. Um, and we've got similar duties to the principal designer, but obviously in relation to the, to the building work. So they must plan, manage, monitor all of the works, all of the packages that they, they let and communicate and coordinate with all the other duty holders. So it, the focus is all around communication, sharing of knowledge, uh, challenging questioning and making sure that the design, if it should, should go to uh, completion, is, um, is uh, satisfies the building regs. The interesting area, I guess, is when we get into design and build, because at that point, a client, uh, when they appoint a principal contractor and a principal designer, if they want to appoint a design and build organisation, then they need to demonstrate that that or satisfy themselves that that organization is competent as a both a principal designer and a principal contractor and therefore the contract the organization has to convince the client that's the case so uh, in, in, that, in that instance they have to satisfy both the, the, the act really talks about individuals all the time as well individual principal contractors principal designers but it's quite clear that for organizations they're most likely to employ these individuals and there's there's an expectation on the on the abilities of that organization they've got to have the right management systems processes policies and resources to carry out its functions but it must delegate the the lead of that project to an individual it, it must be clearly uh, signpost who is the lead individual whether you're a principal designer or a principal contractor working for an organisation, it must be quite clearly signposted who that individual is, and it must be confirmed that they are competent for that particular project. Uh, yeah, just just going back to something there you mentioned within that, Peter, and, and it goes back to competency in some respects. You mentioned one of those softer skills, which is often lost in terms of our industry, in terms of communication. Mm. Do, you, do you think some of the softer skills are being uh, integrated into some of the competency frameworks? That it's, it's in every one of them. It's in uh, it, it, high levels of communication. And that's not just um, obviously speaking, that's listening. Um, Paul alluded to about the behaviours. One of the big, big soft skills in behaviour is, is creating an, an environment where people can speak up. So if they, I mean, many people walk past the, the, the failing, well, the lack of wall ties in in the in the in the schools that, that caused the wall to collapse and never said anything. So the idea that part of the communication is to create a situation where people can speak up uh, and they can report, uh, and then that that uh, information is used, shared, and and um, and um, made sure that the work is corrected. So yeah, communication and all of those are in in all of the the passes. It's um it, there's there are sections on that, but it's an under underlying principle all the way through. So the biggest change is the behaviours about um, reporting, allowing reporting to take place, speaking up, challenging, questioning, um, not in a difficult way, but just just reassurance that I was sure I was sure about this before we proceed. Okay, and another new role, uh, one, to, one to the many. This is the role of, of duty holder, Paul. So I'll move this one across to you. Uh, in terms of duty to holder, can you tell us uh, what would be within the scope of the Act in terms of that role? 
Thanks, Martin. Yes, so I think the first thing to say is that whilst the term duty holder does appear in the Act, it, it's very much in the context of uh, the Building Act um, and the responsibility that uh, we are seeing uh, that will be imposed on the print to, to, to Pete's previous point, you know, on principal designers and principal contractors. Um, there's close alignment with the instruction design and management regulations. That's very deliberate. So as, as you'd expect, the same duty holder roles are mirrored here. So the client, PD, PC, uh, contractors and designers. Um, and um, but, but actually, but funny enough, when you look at that, there's, there's, there's reference to prescribed persons, um, appointed persons as well. So, so I think it's and, and actually prescribed uh, persons includes, um, you know, those people who um, both sort of own buildings, residents of buildings, um, and accountable persons uh, under Part Four of the Act as well. So I think rather than add to what Pete said, because Pete's covered very well the responsibilities that will be imposed on the principal designer, principal contractor. It's probably worth. I would just like to touch on the accountable person because I think this is a new role um, under under the Act, and as is, you know, is a prescribed role, um, and this this. Uh, is a uh, that would become the duty holder uh, in occupation, um, and of course for an existing building, uh, they are the duty holder, um, and and that has certain uh, legal responsibilities. Uh, one of which is to register the building. In fact, the register of higher risk buildings opens next month, and then um, accountable persons have six months in which to register their building uh, from that date. Um, and uh, the other legal responsibility is to apply for and display when, when asked a, a building assessment certificate. Um, in order to obtain a building assessment certificate, you need to provide certain specific information. I know you mentioned this This may well be covered in, in a separate podcast, but it's probably worth just touching on that because uh, you need to provide a safety case, uh, mandatory, mandatory reporting. Um, uh, you need to also uh, provide a residence engagement strategy um, and certain information about the building as well. Um, and what was interesting, just touching that point, actually that requirement to provide that information about your building building um, to the regulator has actually been brought forward. It's now linked to the registration process. Um, so effectively what that's saying is from if it's an existing building from uh, next month, you've got six months to register and then you've got 28 days from registration uh, or applying for registration with its, within which to provide um, that information about your building. So, um, so so there's a lot happening. And it goes back to the point I made earlier about where I think there's still a lot of work to be done um, with building owners uh, to raise their awareness and understanding of what uh, what this act means for them. Um, and there's a, you know, if you think about it, I mean, how many owners uh, of buildings um, that fall within the scope of the act really understand what their buildings are made of, um, you know, in terms of the cladding um, and, and, and other elements of the building as well. So, so you know, that, that's one part of the information that needs to be pulled together. Of course, this all goes back to the golden threat, which is another key uh, theme that runs through the Building Safety Act, this requirement to create um, and uh, maintain a golden thread of information about the building um, throughout its entire life cycle. So what we're trying to do really, you know, with new buildings coming through, 
not unreasonably, you'd expect uh, the design and construction team to understand what the requirements are in terms of providing information about the building. Um, and But for existing buildings, that's a lot more challenging, particularly as you start going further back in time. Um, you know, we talk about the, uh, uh, you know, the, the dusty lever arch files sat in a, in a basement uh, storeroom somewhere when you ask somebody, you know, where, where's the information about their building? And of course, one of the other requirements of this legislation, this this uh, key building information it's referred to, is is it has to be stored digitally, or in electronic format. So again, you know, there's a lot of work to be done around that as well, in order to comply with the act. Martin, can I just say as well that many of the things that um, and that Paul's really clearly outlined there as well, a lot of those were in in the draft bill were assigned to a building safety manager, and of course that role was taken out. I think the critical point is. The title was removed, but the responsibilities remain. And uh, the assumption is that the, the, the appointed person, that the, the, uh, the building owner, will appoint and it's someone or an organisation to to still manage those and take oversight of those responsibilities. Uh, it's well, I'm really pleased Pete raised that point because it was um, it's such an important role, um, and you know for whatever reason in in the final stages of the bill process um, it was taken out of the act, um, and yet the role or the function still remains. I mean the responsibility, the legal responsibility, sits with the accountable person. Whether they have the skills, knowledge, experience, and behaviours in order to perform that is highly unlikely in my view. So, you know, it's not surprising that even this week I've seen a local authority advertising for a building safety manager. You know, you might have removed the title from the Act, but actually it already uh, obtained quite a lot of traction, I think primarily because it, it, it says what the role is, you know, so I haven't seen anyone coming up with other titles yet, have you, Pete? No, not at all. no, no, no. I'm sure like everything else, there'll be other titles depending on the salaries coming up coming up as we, as we work this one through, Paul. Um, so, yeah, thanks, thanks for those answers in terms of roles and some of the new roles in terms of the Act. Uh, but really, finally, the Building Safety Act is far reaching. As, as we all know, and a very current reality for many. Uh, certainly, this is one huge year in our industry and everybody who works within it. Uh, if you could impart just one single piece of advice to builders and developers this year, what would it be? And I'll, I'll start with you first, Peter, on that one. Um, well, I'll do it from a, uh, an organisational perspective then. Um, and some organisations have started this, and I think it's the right way forward. And that is that while they're waiting for the detail, they're starting to map their job specs, their person specs against uh, the the uh, PASs, the, the competence requirements of the PAS to say, just to make sure that the, the people they're appointing into those roles match against those uh, those requirements. So they're taking the job specs, the person specs, looking at those against the framework, adding, making amendments or whatever, and then looking at the individuals that they have in those posts, just to confirm that they are uh, competent to do those roles. And I think at the moment, there's not much more they can do until there's some other means of certifying them. And if I was an individual, I'd be putting myself forward uh, for that kind of, a, um, um, maybe through the internal appraisal mechanism to, to put myself forward and say, I believe I do have these competences and to demonstrate them. So that, that would be my immediate advice. And yourself, Paul, over to you. Yes, Martin, I think for me, First and foremost, and I think you touched on it uh, in your introduction when you said this is the you know the biggest change in in building safety legislation, the generation you know. Um, understand your responsibilities under the Act. 
that's mm. first of all, your legal responsibilities, because that's what these are. Um, and when you understand them, if you haven't done so already, make sure you're prepared um, and you're doing what you need to do. And that goes beyond compliance. And I think this is a really, you know, put important point I want to make. This isn't just about complying. You know, if we learn one thing from uh, the inquiry into Grenfell, you know, there was this culture of, as Dame Judith called it, the race to the bottom, complying to a minimum standard. This is not about just about this is about doing the right thing. It's about providing buildings and homes or creating buildings and homes that are safe for people to live in first and foremost and i think that is you know the one message i want to get across every time i have an opportunity to speak to people about this is we have to remember this is what this is all about this is about keeping those people safe in the first you'd, you'd think it was something that would be would not have to be said but the one thing we've learned from grenfell and subsequently from what we've now discovered is is somewhere along the way we've lost sight of that you know the buildings we create are there you know, they perform a function they perform a, a function that goes beyond just being a you know providing people with shelter um or or a place to go to work or whatever you know so i think it's understand that responsibility and doing whatever you need to do to make sure that you go above and beyond the minimum standard well said Bob. Yeah, thanks, Paul. And I think your book ended it perfectly from the start and the finish here in terms of where this where this arose from uh, in terms of Grenfell. So thank you very much for that and uh, bringing it all together at the end. Um, unfortunately, that's all we have time for today. A massive thank you to our guests, Peter Dorber and Paul Nash, for sharing their time and insight with us. If you want to learn more about the Building Safety Act or indeed any other industry updates, you can do so by subscribing to Insight, Premier Guarantees, Hub of Knowledge and Expertise. The link can be found on our website and on social media channels. Finally, thank you for listening. This has been Premier Guarantees Insight Invites. See you next time for episode two.